Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I started this podcast to have several intentions be shared, and I read them at the beginning of every episode. So number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. If you'd like to be a guest on the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, <clears throat> you can email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Today, we are doing a special episode, um, as maybe a series of episodes even, uh, called White Silence, White Exceptionalism, White Superiority, and the Spiritual White Woman as Predator and Prey. Obviously, this is a focus on our community of 3HO Kudulini Yoga and these areas of white supremacy 
and white exceptionalism run rampant within our community. And I'm speaking to this particularly on this episode because the last recording that I did, I found myself during the episode and after the episode quite literally vomiting inside of me. And there was so much that my system was processing that I just, I had to figure out what all and, and spend time with understanding and feeling the vitriol. And, and before recording this next episode of wanting to really highlight the extreme amount of white superiority and exceptionalism that um, 3HO Kundalini Yoga displays, how this particular episode, what I realized happened within me was that it was a fine example of white silence and white silence on my side where I'm literally listening to white, uh, I'm listening to white supremacy, white privilege language within the context of a story that a guest comes on and tells and is sharing a very traumatic experience within the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. And yet I realized that to be who I stand for, I wanna be a better ally. And to be an anti-racist means we stand up and speak to racist terminology and language as best that we can in the moments that it's happening. And so the spirit of this episode is really to highlight and call out what white exceptionalism looks like and feels like and how it runs rampant within the 3HO community, but also within the persona and narrative of the spiritual white woman and how superiority and exceptionalism expresses itself in so many ways within our community and that the story of the spiritual white woman isn't just relevant to 3HO, although it has a long historical um, predator and prey relationship that we're gonna discuss today. And But my white silence is what I wanna also speak to is that <clears throat> so much of the episode made me realize that I didn't have language to name what I was feeling. And that reminded me that I haven't done enough anti-racist work to be able to have that language right available to me in real time. And it reminds me that all of us within this community and in the world have much more work to do to be able to really um, call out white supremacy within our own selves and to dismantle that within our own um, conscious and unconscious. So moving into this particular um, episode, the last episode, uh, I recorded, I want to again, apologize for not being a better ally. I was doing the best I could to hold her in her sharing, um, coming on to and, and sharing her experience within 3HO. And I did call out white exceptionalism and white superiority, <clears throat> but the entire narrative and language used really just had such cultural bias, prejudice, fetishizing, tokenism, um, racist stereotypes, superiority language, and the necessity of naming the historical weaponry of whiteness, and specifically the white woman, I feel is very helpful and necessary because I feel like oftentimes these things just have gotten so normalized within 3HO that it's just kind of become the way things were, and just like silence 
does that. It just is something that goes on, but we just kind of internalize it. So I stand on the sharing of her episode, even though she was obviously very much in a trauma state. You know, a lot of what she was sharing was very fresh and new. And I do wonder whether I should allow somebody to come and share their story that is so fresh in their experience. But I do want to say that one of the reasons I go green light when people are coming forward and sharing these abuse stories of their experiences in 3HO Kundalini Yoga is that this is fresh. She spoke of a story from 2021 right here in June. She's among the many people that have gotten the story or the narrative that why be the predator did such and such, or I don't know what to believe. And so it's kind of like a way that teachers are using to just kind of keep people in this state of numb neutrality. And she spoke to that, right? She spoke to the kind of that state of numbness. Um, And she obviously spoke to her own trauma-informed state when finding kundalini yoga and meditation. And so, you know, what I feel like the whole episode did was highlight so many formulas of financial, sexual, psychological, predatory abuse formula that's very much still in play. So, you know, I hope somebody forwards this episode to KRI or 3HO or the people that are heading this. Because what I do know is that there are very good hearted people running in positions of leadership within the organizations that are perpetuating the teachings and teacher trainings. But right now in 2021, she spoke to very, very serious predatory formulas of living the 3HO dream. And essentially what that speaks to is fetishizing the Sikh religion fetishizing Punjabi Sikh men, fetishizing all of our young Sikh men born into this holy Sikh culture, right? This appropriated white Sikh culture. Um, And she also, you know, the episode highlighted the atmosphere of the holy trusting uncle, the holy trusting spiritual mentor, And again, this is not unique to our community. This shows up in all communities where there's kind of layers of hierarchy of holiness. And so to know that right now in today's current day teacher trainings, KRI, which if you go and look at the website interfaces, you know, it's full of language like social justice and shadow work and healing your trauma and lots of POC people of color and black and indigenous people on the site. And so it's like students like her come through this and there's a fetishizing into Sikh Dharma and and not Sikh Dharma, but Sikhi as a religion, knowing that what Sikh Dharma is is in a white appropriated version of this that's, you know, being illuminated, but that there's this exceptionalism that Punjabi men have towards the white woman as much. Both of them were playing out how the white woman has been fetishized and the fetishizing of the brown black body or the wise spiritual guru, ultimate wise teacher, and maybe the fetishizing of a teacher. And that's a really big, interesting element of this formula. So this is full effect. And what I'm experiencing and feeling and noticing is that it's quite harmful, offensive, and unnecessary because there are a lot of excellent parts of the yoga training tools that could be passed on without the fetishizing and the exceptionalizing of the Sikh religion and trying to kind of make this story of like the ultimate dream is to marry this holy Sikh 
being, right? This Punjabi Sikh man that is a man of God. So the horrible evidence of racist history in 3HO um, is so evident that not one single black uh, or indigenous or person of color from the 3HO community or the Kundalini Yoga community has come forward. I know that there are many who have just gotten sick and tired of telling the shameful, horrible stories that they've experienced with our community. And so they will no longer effort. It's called emotional labor. That black and brown and indigenous people of color don't wanna emotionally labor to help white people understand a lot of what I'm gonna explain on this podcast. What makes our language and our actions and our behaviors so damn offensive. So, while I'm not specifically um, pointing out the person that was on that episode, I am going to use time stamps to explain some concepts when it comes to white privilege and white superiority that I had to go and learn and re-wash myself in to let this language be reminded that I am still washed in my own white privilege and I'm working on having better language to be a better anti-racist and better ally. So the way that I started to get into and learn some of the language and pierce my own veil of privilege and pierce my own veil of white exceptionalism um, is the book Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad, which I want to encourage you to get. And I'm going to talk more about that on this episode. Again, Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad. But again, particularly, I want to highlight that I have spoken to some different um, people of 3HO or Kundalini Yoga that are black and indigenous and people of color. And the non-readiness to come forward and share their story makes sense to me. And I just hold you there. And I apologize that that this is so rampant and it's like in all the language and, and in these episodes, and I wanna do better at calling it out for all of us to learn and grow from. So as I call out these places, we're not gonna necessarily replay the clips, but I do want to call out what this is highlighting and why it's so racist and why all of us have to get better at not using this language and recognizing this stuff within us. Because I think that the exceptionalism is so rampant that we can, um, and the even idea of superiority and privilege is that we can't even see it. All right, so in again, I'm speaking to episode 39 that I just recorded last week and um, <clears throat> using the book, Me and White Supremacy to kind of go through some of these uh, definitions. And I'm going to play some clips from the book as well. But around section 105 to 108, um, you know, she's speaking about so much cultural appropriation. You know, it's, um, you know, she's speaking about the perfect turban and the perfect beard and this, perfect angel and this idea of this amazing kind of like godly man and just kind of how this shows up within 3HO Kundalini Yoga um, at about timestamp 110. She speaks to, um, she's talking about the person who she was marrying and here she's talking about the way he acts, right? So he'll be real, real direct or firm or sort of rude. And what this speaks to within the language of white privilege is the white gaze 
It's called tone policing. It's white centering. Again, it's fetishizing. Um, it's superiority. It's kind of that the the exceptionalism, saviorism, privilege. So yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and just play a quick clip here so you can really hear this fetishizing, saviorism, exceptionalism. Let's see what we got. was relatively open and I did I was kind of mystified by the Punjabi Sikhs in the KRI community they just I don't know what it was but the younger ones seemed very just magical I don't I don't really know how to, like very godly um so it was just really a story that was created in my mind sure. um by when you were oh yeah just a, a short clip of this mystification and how if we really think about, you know, how we were raised or what you learned when you were in 3HO and practicing Kundalini Yoga, this whole mystification of the Sikh culture, the Punjabi culture, the ultimate kind of way to be, the, the, the fact that in teacher training we're having students sign contracts to wear their hair in a turban and to do certain lifestyle practices that, again, is creating this tokenism and creating this, this, um, this whole story that then creates this mystification for the for a white woman coming into this community. So the white gaze, the white centering, and then what happens is then at some point when she's explaining, you know, how, um, the cultural difference, you know, what, what I became so astounded by was that here she ends up, you know, in the scenario of marrying a person of Punjabi culture and, you know, really having no sense of awareness of the difference of culture, right? So this is white gaze, white centering, white centering. Um, and, you know, I think I actually want to pause and I want to give us some language around what tone policing is or what white centering is so that we're going to spend some more time on this in this episode but i want to really highlight what these things mean in context because it's helpful to know what the language is so that when we start to hear it in everyday life we can learn how to call it out in ourselves call it out in each other, call it out in our communities, call it out in our families. So let's do that. Let's listen to what is, let's start with, what is tone policing?
A6. So this is uh, Leila Saad, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Chant, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor. We are going to listen to uh, the day three, learning about what tone policing, okay, tone policing. Day three, you and tone policing. I speak out of direct and particular anger at an academic conference, and a white woman says, Tell me how you feel, but don't say it too harshly, or I cannot hear you. But is it my manner that keeps her from hearing, or the threat of a message that her life may change? Audrey Lord. What is tone policing? Tone policing is a tactic used by those who have privilege to silence those who do not by focusing on the tone of what is being said rather than the actual content. It can be policing BIPOC for using tones that are too angry when talking about racism or celebrating them over other BIPOC for using tones that are considered more soft, eloquent, and soothing. In both cases, BIPOC are expected to cater to the white gaze, the white supremacist lens through which people with white privilege see BIPOC, and the comfort level of a person's white fragility when talking about racism. It is also important to note that tone policing does not only have to be spoken out loud. People with white privilege often tone police BIPOC in their thoughts or behind closed doors understanding that to do so out loud would be considered racist. However, what exists within can do just as much, if not more, harm than what is spoken out loud. What lies within influences what comes out, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Okay, so I want to just pause there and just say how tone policing is that as white people, we have a tendency to say how the language, how somebody should communicate, the sound current of the way it should come out, as if everything starts through the white gaze and the white-centered experience. And, you know, that is really replicated within a 3HO culture, which is in and of itself its own appropriated culture, and has its own way of tone policing those that don't speak the 3HO neutrality tone. So it's like we have white supremacy layered over white supremacy and it's everywhere. It's like seeping at the seams and it's within our own psyche. So it's like as the story got told, she's explaining her lived experience, which was obviously very traumatic, but it's within the concept of white saviorism, white exceptionalism, white, the white gaze of, well, his face looked like this and he looked so angry or, you know, fetishizing him and making him godly and then didn't like the way that his nose or his body features were. These are historically racist languages of ways in which we elevate 
black and brown indigenous people steal their cultural and cultural ways and yet then degrade them for being the culture expression that they are because it doesn't match the white gaze or the white lens. And so we turn everything back to our own way, the white centering experience. So that's just a little bit here. Uh, I wanna keep going with, with, with all of this because you know, she goes on to speak at um, point 144, um, a lot of white supremacy, tokenism, uh, white, centering, white centering, and you know, at one point around 146 speaks to the, her background, a part of her own family, a part of her family being racist. And all of our backgrounds and families are racist. And so we have to, as white people, be willing to start examining and looking at what is the historical racism that's been encoded into my psyche and my way of operating. And that's what me and white supremacy work is really all about. So that's why we're calling this out so that all of us get to learn. Um, <clears throat> so at 148, she's talking about again, tone policing, white saviorism, white superiority, um, talking about the way he's meditating and stuff like this. And then, you know, the part that hurt so much too is when she was explaining about the, 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 the wedding and how when things weren't going the way she wanted it particularly to go, how she wasn't having fun. And this is particular, and everyone else is. And she specifically refers to the music that's, you know, Punjabi culture, right? Bhangra and you know, having just married a Punjabi man and not knowing the the name of this music, um, I found myself offense offended. And I say that as a woman who grew up in, as a white Sikh um, with a lot of pride for that sense of a cultural identity. Now knowing, of course, that, that cultural identity is a appropriated identity that's very deeply rooted in racist uh ideology and and colonialism um and and more than that but the the thing is is that to have go through a wedding to wear traditional Sikh gear and and clothing and you know to have people kind of participate in creating this whole affair and i know those that are devoted to the 3ho and Sikh path um in espanola or in any community you know i don't live your inner your community and yet i know the devotion and the pride that is taken to the life you choose and so it was just overall so offensive to hear um the white centering and the white exceptionalism within that context of 3ho right within that experience of her becoming a sikh and joining becoming a sikh woman and having a wedding, it was offensive to 3HO culture. It was obviously offensive to Punjabi culture. And it was just very much rooted in racism. And when we are spiritual people on this path, and we are literally a living tapestry of white superiority and white privilege, then our work becomes being able to like pierce our own veil. So in these moments of hearing all this, I didn't know even what to call it. I felt disgust, but I didn't 
have enough of my own language and this speaks to my white silence, which I'm gonna get more into here. And how easy it is to take the road of white silence and even the road of what a lot of us, I think, grew up with within 3HO is colorblindness um, and this kind of white past because we grew up with this otherness. <clears throat> um, let me just pause on that and we're gonna get more to that. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> being someone that grew up in this culture, you know, knowing the beauty and the heart and the dedication of those devoted to the 3HO community, even in all of the ways that I find it offensive and racist, I also know the pride and the dedication and what it means to, to wear a turban that you're, you feel good in, you know, and to be made fun of for your turban and these types of things. So what I feel like all of this white superiority did in, in that episode was it highlighted and illuminated several very, very old patterns. And one of them, is a pattern that I think is very important to speak out loud. And that's very good people, very good men can be predators. And very good women can be predators. And when I say good, they can have helped a lot of people. They can have established, established businesses and opportunities that have served and helped other a lot of people. They can be genuinely good human beings and yet they can also have been predators to people and in other aspects of, of life and I think our community is just rampant with the example that she spoke of where the uncle or the spiritual teacher becomes the sexual predator and the white woman the spiritual white woman in this sense in our community and in lots of spiritual communities is prey um, <clears throat> because First of all, this is a hard one to hold. How do we hold that somebody can be a good person and yet still be a predator? And, you know, my father was a good man and he was a predator. He hurt a lot of women that were young, naive yoga students. Um, he also um, uh, just, he was a predator. You know, he did things that made women feel uncomfortable, whether it was touching them inappropriately, whether it was convincing them to be his sex partners. And he's not the only one. Like this is lots and lots of examples within the 3HO community of the big hearted man that's a devoted yoga teacher or amazing jeweler or has this business or, you know, can read your numbers or your astrology. And they're really just hungry, sexed, starved men that that really haven't been having enough sex most of their life and are young men that haven't had enough sex most of their life because growing up within this culture of thou so holy and don't have sex and it's like oh my god it's just so sad and and even there's that narrative that goes on about our young men that you know they're so compassionate and so heart opened but what i'm seeing and hearing in the tapestry of our children and our young men from our community is a lot of childhood sexual abuse victims that haven't felt safe enough to speak out loud in our community. And there's nothing open-hearted or compassionate about that. The fact that our young boys have been sexually molested and haven't been able to speak out and now they're being pedestalized as if they're so compassionate and heart-centered when really they're really vacant in their lower bodies and needing a lot more touch and sex as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> so 
the many carry on this predator formula of thinking that their cock is some sort of thunderbolt of healing for all whom it touches. And we've heard this theme through a couple of the past episodes that are young men that are, you know, taking the most thy so holy yogi path have this, you know, weird persona about themselves that their cock is some thunderbolt of healing. And so that carries on as prey against spiritual white women coming in through our community. And we've heard this again, once again, and this is literally the kind of stuff, why be the predator literally propagated and spoke to in the psyches of this teacher, holy men uh, type within our spiritual community. There's a long, long formula of it. We know that the predator formula of YB was in the very beginning. We read that in, in Premka. So we heard that story and then we heard story after story of sexual violation of touching young women's breasts that were groomed in our community from childhood and that YB would do these things. And it's starting to be more evident that that same behavior has just carried on through all of the communities and all of the ashrams and is still very much being propagated through the teacher training system. So in one way, the, the predators of the spiritual holy men against the white woman that obviously comes from a tremendous amount of past trauma who hasn't dealt with her own trauma. And instead of finding people that are trauma informed within a community that propagates itself as the yoga of awareness, Instead, it ends up, you know, being preyed on at every level from teacher training level, preyed on from the men in the community, from the ones that are supposed to be trusting. But let's take another spin, another very old and illuminated pattern here is that the white spiritual women Within the circle of YB, right, there was this persona that was the elite persona, the skinny white woman, right, that got to be close to the spiritual teacher, the brown or black bodied guru, the spiritual leader, or the ashram director, or that special teacher with all the healing powers. So we all know of stories like this within our own specific 3HO community where the yoga teacher left his wife and married a yoga student. And then again and again, and then again and again, and maybe had many affairs or maybe ended up marrying one or whatever the story was, but the list goes on and on. <clears throat> I know how sad it's been to witness and what would happen when quote, that spiritual teacher of that ashram and that new yoga student white woman um, got caught was that young spiritual white woman would get married off by YB to some other man who we're learning now has often been a predator, maybe a former wife beater or sexual abuser or pedophile. And that a lot of these young white spiritual women are getting married off after you know, being the prey of that holy director of whatever region they came in, whether it was 3HO Europe or 3HO Latin America or 3HO East Coast or West Coast or all the things. <clears throat> so spiritual white woman as prey 
is obviously very rampant. We've seen this. And then we've seen their abuse stories, getting married off, being one of several women of these different teachers, right? So again, the YB formula propagating itself. But the spiritual white woman as predator is a very, very long old history. And not just the spiritual white woman, but the white woman as predator. And we're gonna spend many more episodes discussing this because one of the things in white superiority is how the white woman has been used as the weapon of choice, the most racist weapon of choice historically against the black and brown body, against indigenous bodies, both women and men. And this is obviously not limited to our community. But what I realized after this episode was how much of an issue that isn't being talked about enough is the weaponry of the spiritual white woman within spiritual yoga communities. So when I started to do some research on this, which obviously not enough research, but I wanted to do some and start this conversation, this very important, uncomfortable conversation. But I did find an episode, a a podcast episode called Yoga is Dead podcast. And the first episode that these two women created was called White Women Killed Yoga. And their podcast called the Yoga is Dead podcast is um, the Yoga is Dead podcast is a revolutionary podcast that explores power, privilege, fair pay, harassment, race, cultural appropriation, and capitalism in the yoga and wellness worlds. So on this podcast, we'll hear Indian American hosts Tejal and Jaisal as they expose all of the monsters lurking under the yoga mat. So I'm going to just play this episode a little bit that gives us a lens into this much larger conversation that needs to be had about the spiritual white woman and how white women are taking over yoga and quite offensively and doing many things that are very, very much rooted in white supremacy. So. All right, so here is this episode, Yoga is Dead. They t- All right, the Yoga is Dead podcast, how white women killed yoga. To get paid in the yoga industry. Yeah, I I actually would love to hear from you. I think we both would love to hear from you guys about experiences that resonate similarly in this way where you just felt powerless, even though you had education and background and knowledge to offer in the situation. How many times did you feel stripped of the right to express your opinion because you were worried about rocking the boat? Yeah, exactly. And I think that was sort of the bonding moment that we had is talking about this one particular person. And it's sort of like, I think the genesis of this podcast. But since that time, I think we've both found an increasing number of challenging personalities with white women, especially white women in some sort of leadership position. Um, 
we I think in general and just again to generalize, we found these women to be impenetrable to feedback. We found them extremely defensive at the slightest suggestion or difference in opinion. We found them exhibiting extreme food obsession and unable to contain their hangups about body image. Um, I find many of them to be hyper competitive with other women and their culture conditioned to tear each other down rather than support the community as a whole, which if you look at other communities of yoga teachers out there that are not white, you'll see we're like really supportive of each other. We're not here to tear each other down and compete, um, which is not something you usually find with white women in general. Yeah, so I found this, I found this episode to be very fascinating to listen to because what they described as their interaction being Indian American women taking a yoga training at a white, you know, at a, you know, a white yoga, whatever the type. And, you know, they described an experience where they, um, you know, said the name of a asana, you know, a posture and how the teacher corrected them as if they said it wrong or corrected her and she said it wrong and how, you know, they didn't take the time to learn their names. And there was just all these ways in which, you know, there was the white centering and how, what she spoke to specifically that, you know, speaking up to these things becomes more laborious than is worth it. And then it creates actually an an atmosphere where their skill sets, even though they might be more educated, more historically educated, experientially educated, but also academically, uh, they're not able to contribute within these white spaces um, that have been hijacked of the yoga movement. And so somebody within the 3HO, a Punjabi man, had actually reached out to me in my DMs and explaining this very similar thing within the 3HO community that even though, you know, he came from a Punjabi culture, he had a master's, you know, a degree in this and a degree in this and all sorts of experience and really came hungry to want to help the legacy organizations like a call security and Yogi Tea and all these types of things. How what he continually experienced was this internalized racism against the fact that he was Punjabi and educated. And I found that to be a very interesting phenomenon that if it, the more one was on the path of following YB and, and kind of this path of 3HO appropriated Sikhi and the path of that, then they kind of moved up the hierarchy. But the more outside education one had, the more actually like kind of grounded in reality outside of the world of, of the mystification of the 3HO uh, Sikhi culture world, <clears throat> the the more inherently obviously racist and kind of um, shunned it was. So in that episode, she speaks to um, so much around the way that white women compete and have had this culture of competition and um, infatuation of that kind of skinny white woman. And this is very relevant, right, to the history of our community and the inner circle. I know we've heard that a lot within who, what was happening within the inner circle, the constant com competitiveness, the mean girlness, the skinniness, the, um, you know, and, and again, this is what YB perpetuated and what the culture of 3HO Kundalini Yoga perpetuates, right, through this white gaze, white lens. And 
the history of the white woman appropriating the Indian culture or becoming the um, the elevated experience of this appropriated culture. You know, it goes way back. As I heard on this episode, they spoke of Indra Devi. And if you're not familiar with the history of Indra Devi, um, she was uh, considered to be, you know, this early white woman who, who studied with, um, let me give you a little background here. Uh, she went to India in her 20s, becoming a film star there and acquiring the stage name Indra Devi. She was the first white woman to study under the yoga guru Krishna Macharya at the Mysore Palace alongside BKS Iyengar and Patavi Joyce, who both have, by the way, been named as being predators as well, uh, went on to become famous yoga teachers, uh, yoga teacher. So, you know, here's this white woman that in the 20s, you know, becomes a yogi and there's just a long, long, long history and story of the white woman being elevated as kind of this pristine idea of, of what the image of yoga is. And hmm, this all made me, of course, sick to hear and to read and to listen to. But what the whole episode, and I really hope that identifying the last episode doesn't target this particular person. That's not the point. You know, each of us has to dismantle white supremacy within our own bodies and our own language. The reason though, I feel like it's so important to highlight particular elements of the story that was told is that we have to get better at being able to name things for what they are. So as we've heard on the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, I've spoken to gaslighting and when predators are using language that make us feel wrong for the feeling that we're having. And so learning to do this as a sexual abuse survivor it's important to, to break out of our silence and start naming abuse for what it is. It doesn't mean that there's not also experiences of love and appreciation that coexist with that abuse. That's what makes abuse so challenging. Well, that is exactly the same thing when we start to speak to white privilege and white supremacy and all of the ways that we position ourselves and then make sense of the world around us through the lens of whiteness. And my inability to speak to it and call it for what it is had a lot to do with me. Well, I just want to say it out loud. What it made me realize is that I stand very charged in white silence, white apathy, white privilege, and white exceptionalism um, because my experience has been other. Like I grew up as a white Sikh, but in the 70s and 80s, you're just weird. So we got othered. And in my experience, very early, I realized I felt more comfortable within spaces of, of Black and Indigenous and people of color. And that was where I felt more comfortable. And so a lot of my story is that I've taken up refuge in spaces of culture, of Black culture, of African culture, of lots of other culture. And, and of course, I didn't feel like it ever gave me a pass for not being racist. But I didn't fully grasp the ways that my privilege or the ways that my racism exposes itself. And 
So one of the ways that it exposes itself is white silence, not speaking out loud and, and choosing to not notice white spaces that are so damn offensive. Like when I started looking into the white spaces of spiritual whiteism and just all of this, uh, I, I can't help but say, oh my God, how is this being spoke? How is this being said out loud? And, you know, my black and brown friends are like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they're very well versed and no. And, and this episode, what it highlighted for me is that I'm not using my voice enough because I've never looked at myself as a spiritual white woman. That's a horrible thing to say. And I'm saying it. My experience as a white, born a white speak, seek in a culturally appropriated religion is that I've othered myself enough in my consciousness, in my, in my idea of myself, in my persona. And that is a lie. It is a lie. It is a form of the way that I use my privilege to not call out racism in plain sight when I'm feeling it and seeing it and experiencing it. And I call myself to do better. That's what I say. <clears throat> I call myself to get more familiar with what these um, concepts are and how they play out in my life and in my conversations every day. Because if we don't even know what white exceptionalism looks like and feels like, we can't call ourselves out on it. So, my question back to you then. If you've been in 3HO, Sikh Dharma, for the last 30, 40, 50 years, have you used it as a white pass, as a pass for other, to not really see the ways in which you are playing out and living superiority and privilege? If you were born into 3HO, like me, it's a really another great question, because I know for me, even though I cut my hair decades ago, it never really took away the identity and the pride that I had for being born into our community. It was only in the last couple of years that that sense of kind of like specialness really cracked for me. And as much as I had shed so many of the layers of our, pra our lifestyle practices, the idolatry, the internalized superiority or idolatry that Kundalini Yoga or the Aquarian way, the way that we got the special privilege of being a child of the Khalsa to deliver this to humanity, that was still very much encoded and embedded within my body and my psyche. And it's unraveling, but it's there. And this is the next layer of that, of being able to see how this is really white superiority and white silence and white apathy. That I've white, I just have stayed in the backgrounds because it's easier than really confronting and speaking out loud about how disgusting the level of appropriation and, and superiority and tokenism and white centering, how this in, in plain sight is just, it's so normalized, we don't even see it and feel it and hear it. And that's what needs to change is black people see it and hear it and feel it and know it. But as white people, if you're listening to that last episode and not seeing it and feeling it and hearing it and knowing it, 
then that's the crack of white supremacy that has to be done within our own bodies and our own psyches. Then to add the next layer, so you were born in 3HO or you've been in 3HO for the last 40, 50 years, but what is your family legacies on either side? Like I just have that lens crack over the last couple of years of really kind of unidentifying more and more from this false Sikh history that I was encoded as if it was my own and realizing that my parents were actually just two trauma-filled trauma souls kind of trying to find their way. And both of them had a long legacy of family histories. My dad's side's Swedish, my mom's side's Jewish. Long history on both sides of plenty of historical racism, obviously. So I've been looking at these sides of my family and realizing, wow, we got this double pack. We got this compact compactment, right? Of, of how on one hand, our parents tried to get away from that to live this kind of love and light culture that only further propagated next layers of abuse and only more amplified that white superiority message disguised as we are all one, right? Disguised as we are all one. So on that note, we are all one. We've all heard the songs, right? All things come from God, all things go to God. We are all one, we all, come from one we all go to one all the things there was all sorts of songs around the love and light culture of growing up within 3HO and that story is still propagated even though there's a very <clears throat> long and horrible abusive racist culture that happens right now in 3HO culture but also within all the layers of the way white culture is dominating and colonializing um, the yoga world. So I want to share a little bit more on some of the concepts in me and white supremacy so that we can start hearing and recognizing what are these different concepts of our own ways in which we use our white privilege to stay in our position and to let it benefit us. And knowing that white privilege and white supremacy, this hurts all of us. It hurts white people as much as it hurts black and brown people, but we aren't yet seeing the ways that it's hurting us and preventing us from growing up, from growing up and creating our own places of culture that we get to celebrate and be with each other. So I'm gonna go ahead and share um, a little bit more of Layla, uh, Layla Saad. <clears throat> But before I do, I want to say that this whole experience this past week of processing um, the last episode and just really looking at my own white privilege um, and being able to see myself for what I am, you know, I am a spiritual white woman and I'm willing to voice the disgust that I see in the ways that spiritual white women are um, appropriating and abusing um, indigenous and black culture in the name of their spirituality, in the name of shadow work, in the name of enlightenment, in the name of awakening. And that we need to stop using these language, this language that makes us processing our trauma okay, 
um, at the expense of black and brown bodies, at the expense of appropriating other people's cultures for us to have our own epiphanies and awakenings. And that as a child of an appropriated religion and culture, I very much am a product of this. So I am proud of my name. And yet I also didn't know that the extre the extremity of how offensive using Kulsa was, for instance, because we don't know what we haven't been exposed to. So if you listen to this and any of this is triggering you, it's because this stuff is meant to get unraveled and examined and to have your attention on it. And I can't encourage you enough to get the book, Me and White Supremacy, and then do the white Me and White Supremacy challenge. And perhaps we will all do this together, but I challenge you today to get this book and to start really facing the ways that white supremacy exposes itself in you, because it's in all of us. 3HO is historically very white dominated. Our parents joined this community with extreme amounts of unprocessed and unmetabolized traumas that have only become more compacted and impacted with new layers of traumas, spiritual, psychosomatic and sexual, financial, all the ways. And these are actually all tools of white supremacy. So what YB did was just <clears throat> hijack white supremacy and just implement another magnificent version that gave us this exceptionalized persona of ourselves, this, these white pure ones. The ironicism of it all is just like, geez, the pure ones? Like, I know a lot of us when we were waking up were like, yeah, pure ones, yikes. <clears throat> But again, the exceptionalism, you know, making, you know, having us wear all white, the ways that YB gave us special names that weren't appropriate Sikh names, you know, with guru and all sorts of other addendums on there that weren't appropriate. Having all of us have the last name Khalsa as if we were so special above Punjabi culture um, that we got the Khalsa name because it went back before colonialism, like using the colonialism story as a way to then appropriate uh, and give us a new sense of pride and identity, it makes it very, very challenging to be a white person in America that doesn't identify as white. Like, what the F? So if you're that, if you don't identify as white and yet you also do know, hey, I am white, it's like, of course I've known I'm white, but because my cultural identity is so not rooted in American culture, it was much more rooted in this like world Indian culture. <clears throat> it's taken a very, very long time for me to dismantle layers of myself, to see myself and to feel myself clearly. And that is the call on every single one of us to dismantle supremacy and privilege from within us when we've been grown up and embedded within a culture that it, that it supports and enhances every aspect of our life if we're in a white body. Of course, we can't see it. We can't see all the ways in which it propagates us and uplifts us on the backs of brown and, and black bodies. So I want to use this time together to share with you a little bit more about white privilege, white fragility, white exceptionalism. And a big one for our community is white um, is colorblindness, okay? So I am gonna share a little bit more here from Leila Saad. And um, 
again, encouraging you to get the book, Me and White Supremacy, and do your work to be a better anti-racist. Here we go. Day two, you and white fragility. It is white people's responsibility to be less fragile. People of color don't need to twist themselves into knots, trying to navigate us as painlessly as possible. Robin D'Angelo. What is white fragility? Today, we turn to a phrase coined by author Robin D'Angelo. D'Angelo defines white fragility as a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. It was not until I began directly writing and talking about race that I realized how deeply white fragility runs in the vast majority of white people. In 2017, I published a blog post titled I need to talk to spiritual white women about white supremacy. The post unexpectedly went rapidly viral to hundreds of thousands of readers around the world, and it elicited reactions of white fragility that ranged widely from the seemingly well-meaning, this isn't helpful, you're being divisive when you talk about race, to the blatantly vicious, insert anti-black misogynistic Islamophobic rant here. So many of the white people who were interacting with my work had so little experience talking about race that any racial discussion led them to having a total meltdown. There are two main factors that contribute to the existence of white fragility. Lack of exposure to conversations about racism. White privilege protects people who are white and white passing from having to discuss the causes and implications of racism. The privilege of whiteness means that one's day-to-day -day life is not impacted by skin color, so conversations around racism tend to be shallow and filled with platitudes. Think back over your childhood and young adulthood. Most likely, your racial conversations, if any, were not very nuanced or multi-layered. Racism was probably talked about as being something that was binary, e.g., the idea that racists are just mean and bad people versus an understanding of white privilege and what implications it had for you and BIPOC. This lack of exposure to conversations about race has left you ill-equipped to handle the discomfort of racial conversations as an adult, leading to an inevitable response of white fragility. Lack of understanding of what white supremacy actually is. If your understanding of racism and white supremacy does not include a historical and modern-day contextual understanding of colonization, oppression, discrimination, neglect, and marginalization at the systemic level and not just the individual level, then you are going to struggle when it comes to conversations about race. You will assume what is being criticized is your skin color and your individual goodness as a person rather than your complicity in a system of oppression that is designed to benefit you 
at the expense of BIPOC in ways that you are not even aware of. This lack of understanding leads to white fragility, either by lashing out to defend your individual sense of goodness, or feeling that you as an individual are being shamed for being who you are, thus leaving the conversation. This is a dangerous impediment to anti-racism. How does white fragility show up? Here are a few examples of white fragility in action. Getting angry, defensive, or afraid. Arguing. Believing you are being shamed. Crying. Or simply falling silent and choosing to check out of the conversation. Calling the authorities, the manager, the police, the social media censors, on BIPOC when you are uncomfortable with what they are sharing about race. I have had my social media posts reported and censored more than a dozen times because of white fragility. So yeah, we're gonna move on to hearing about white exceptionalism. Let's, this is a big one. White exceptionalism. Day six, you and white exceptionalism. White people desperately want to believe that only the lonely, isolated, whites-only club members are racist. This is why the word racist offends nice white people so deeply. It challenges their self-identification as good people. Sadly, most white people are more worried about being called racist than about whether or not their actions are in fact racist or harmful. Austin Channing Brown What is white exceptionalism? White exceptionalism is the belief that you, as a person holding white privilege, are exempt from the effects, benefits and conditioning of white supremacy and therefore that the work of anti-racism does not really apply to you. I have come to see why. All right, we got to put a flag in that one. So we are born into this culture. We definitely have a tremendous amount of white exceptionalism, even if you've been in the culture for a long time. The idea that kind of we're above the conversation of racism, that we're all one, right? That we're all together on this. And, you know, that really completely bypasses the conversation that needs to be had around <clears throat> racism in plain sight, all of the ways that the racist supremacist narrative goes on and that we allow it to go on because we're not confronting it um, in real time and speaking it out loud and helping each other um, name it for what it is. Um, so yeah, let's see. Let's play another one here. Color blindness. This is a good one for us. Day eight. You and color blindness. White people think it is a compliment when they do not see you 
as a black person. Morgan Jerkins. This will be my undoing. What is colorblindness? Race-based colorblindness is the idea that you do not see color, that you do not notice differences in race, or if you do, that you do not treat people differently or oppress people based on those differences. As a child, I could never understand why white parents would shush their children whenever they use the word black to describe a black person. Don't say that, it's rude, they would say in hushed tones, embarrassed that their child had said something that was apparently offensive. But what made it offensive? I was black. This was an observation of difference, not a derogatory judgment. How were they supposed to refer to me? These parents sometimes took it a step further by saying things like, they're not black, they're just people. What did this mean? And why was it so important for them not to say the word black? It often left me wondering, was black synonymous with bad? Was my skin color a source of shame? And if so, was I expected to act as if I were not black to make white people more comfortable around me? Young children understand that the idea of we don't see color does not make sense. They will not necessarily use the socially constructed terms of race that we as adults use, such as black or white, but when asked to describe what color they are and what color their friends are, they use words such as brown and peach that match up with the colors in their Crayola crayon boxes. When drawing a picture of themselves and their friend who is a different color, they would choose the colors that best match the skin colors they see. So why do we teach children not to see color. More specifically, why is it most often white children and children with white privilege who are taught this idea of color blindness? When I have asked these questions of white people by pointing out that they do see color, they've often answered back, I don't mean that I don't literally see color. What I mean is that I treat all people the same regardless of their color. I mean, that I believe that all people should be treated the same, no matter what color they are. They sometimes go on to add, Talking about different races is so divisive, it creates racism. If we would just stop talking about whites and blacks and focus on the contents of people's hearts, we wouldn't see any more racism. And herein lie the falsehoods of the promise of racial color blindness. The promise of the Church of Colorblindness is that if we stop seeing race, then racism goes away. That racism will go away not through awakening consciousness of privilege and racial harm, not through systemic and institutional change, not through addressing imbalances in power, not through making amends for historical and current day harm, but instead by simply acting as if the social construct of race has no actual consequences, both for those with white privilege and those without it. The belief is that if you act as if you do not see color, you will not do anything racist or benefit from racism. And if you teach your children to not see race too, you can create a new generation of people who will not do anything racist or benefit from racism. Unfortunately, that is not how white supremacy works. 
The problem does not go away because you refuse to see it. And this kind of thinking is naive at best and dangerous at worst. In his book, Racism Without Racists, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in Contemporary America, Puerto Rican author, political sociologist, and sociology professor Eduardo Benilla Silva writes about the phenomenon of colorblind racism, or what he calls the new racism. In the opening chapter of his book, he writes, Nowadays, except for members of white supremacist organizations, few whites in the United States claim to be racist. Most whites assert they don't see any color, just people that although the ugly face of discrimination is still with us, it is no longer the central factor determining minorities' life chances. And finally, that, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they aspire to live in a society where people are judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. Sounds like an admirable outlook to have, doesn't it? The problem is, the philosophy of colorblindness does not sufficiently answer the question of why, if there are no racists, racism continues to exist. If white people do not see color, why do BIPOC continue to experience oppression? According to the proponents of colorblindness, that is not white people's fault. Vanilla Silva goes on to explain. More poignantly, most whites insist that minorities, especially blacks, are the ones responsible for whatever race problem we have in this country. They publicly denounce blacks for playing the race card, for demanding the maintenance of unnecessary and divisive race-based programs such as affirmative action, and for crying racism whenever they are criticized by whites. So I'm going to pause there and just ask you to really feel into your approach. I feel that what I noticed as I started looking into the spiritual white community, this color blindness is a real rampant way of spiritual bypassing real racism issues that are that black and brown people are faced regularly. And that the spiritual white woman <clears throat> has taken this place of privilege as if um, they're the most, the group of most compassion, the group of, of kind of most on board with the liberation cause when in all reality historically the white woman has actually been the most weaponized tool um, against the black and brown body but specifically against the lynchings and killings of black men and so instead of going into that in this episode i'm going to do an entire whole episode about the weaponizing of the white woman i see a few comments um, in the live broadcast here um, just asking about how, <clears throat> so is the culture of the spiritual white woman is more toxic than supportive and compassionate. The interjection of the white woman have tainted the values, ethics, and true meaning of what yoga represents. <clears throat> like they're asking a question here, but essentially this is the ongoing conversation, right? When we get into conversations around white fragility and white centering and kind of like what is the appropriate response to waking up to realizing that you are literally just a cesspool of white supremacy expressed in very sophisticated ways that are disguised to you, like white apathy, like white centering, like tokenism, like saviorism, like optical allyship. 
And like this, like being called out and being called in. All of these concepts are within this book, Me and White Supremacy. And the reason I'm bringing this as the landscape for our conversation, when there's a lot of anti-racist books, and I'll bring more um, resources forward, is because when we're called out as white people for using language that is inherently racist, we aren't necessarily supposed to know. But when you get called out, now you know. Now it never feels good to get called out, but guess what? We need more of us that are white people learning to call each other out and supporting each other you know, to learn how to use proper language that isn't inherently rooted in racist ways of putting white people at the center of the universe. Whether it's through our gaze, whether it's through our language, or whether it's through our cultural appropriation practices that make us actually think that these are our practices because we inherently have never had the experience of not being able to have access to certain things because that is a part of superiority and privilege in and of itself. So while there are so many aspects to this book that I want to play, um, I think I'm going to end with white apathy and encourage each and every one of us to come out of our neutral states, our apathetic states, our silent states. <clears throat> Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll play white silence since it was the theme of my own experience. And then I'm doing the best I can to come out of my own white apathy and white silence and um, have public conversations that are uncomfortable about whiteness, white women in whiteness, spiritual white women in whiteness, because I am all of those things. I am a spiritual white woman and I have some things to say about how white superiority and spiritual superiority um, are just a really toxic root system that each of us have got to learn how to start feeling, noticing, and dismantling within ourselves and each other. So our last share for this episode is going to be on white silence and white apathy. Let's start with white silence. What is white silence? Day four. You and white silence. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. What is white silence? White silence is exactly what it sounds like. It is when people with white privilege stay complicitly silent when it comes to issues of race and white supremacy. Yesterday, we covered tone policing, which is about how you silence BIPOC. Today, we are unpacking white silence, which is about how you stay silent about racism. Both types of silencing arise out of white fragility, a fear of being incapable of talking about race without coming apart. However, White fragility is not the only cause of white silence. White silence is also a defending of the status quo of white supremacy, a manifestation of holding on to one's white privilege through inaction. As Dr. King points out in this topic's opening quote, it is often the silence of good people that hurts the most. For three years, 
I was best friends with a white woman whom I adored. We had a lot in common. We were both highly introverted, creative visionaries. I lived in the UK and I lived in Qatar. We were firmly planted in each other's. Okay, and the last one I'm going to share here for today is white apathy. What is white apathy? Day 15. You and white apathy. Our humanity is worth a little discomfort. It's actually worth a lot of discomfort. Ijeoma Oluo. What is white apathy? Merriam-Webster defines apathy as lack of feeling or emotion, lack of interest or concern, and gives the synonyms indifference, unconcern, passivity, detachment, insensitivity, dispassion, disregard. White apathy arises as a self-preservation response to protect yourself from having to face your complicity in the oppression that is white supremacy. But like white silence, white apathy is not neutral. It is easy to judge intentional and planned out acts of racism as the only manifestation of white supremacy. However, the intentional non-action of white apathy is just as dangerous as these intentional actions of racism. White apathy lacks aggression, but it is deadly in its passivity. Through detachment and indifference to racial harm, white apathy says, it's really sad that this is happening, but it's not my problem. White apathy therefore tries to enforce this idea that white supremacy is a problem inherent to BIPOC and not a problem created and maintained by people with white privilege. White apathy says to BIPOC, I wish I could help you with your cause, but unfortunately, I'm just too busy right now. Unfortunately, I'm just too tired right now. Unfortunately, it's just not a priority for me right now. Maybe when I can clear a bit more space for myself, I can make some time to come help you out. Until then, all the best. But dismantling white supremacy is not a charitable cause. It is not a social media awareness campaign or a fundraising Kickstarter. It is a system of oppression that confers unearned advantages and privileges to one group of people at the expense of other groups of people. It is an ideology that perpetuates harm through discrimination, abuse, racist stereotypes, and criminalization. If people with white privilege feel a sense of apathy about dismantling this system, imagine how BIPOC feel about having to face it down every day. White apathy is the choice to stay in the warm and safe comfort of white supremacy and the privileges it affords. There are several factors that we have covered in this book so far that contribute to white apathy. White privilege. The privilege of whiteness means not having to deal with white supremacy if one chooses not to. After all, white supremacy benefits those who are white or white passing in ways that are very attractive. White apathy says, why throw that away? There is so much more to lose than there is to gain. White fragility. White fragility causes so much discomfort that it is easy to decide that it is not worth it and return to the comfort of white supremacy. White apathy is like a warm blanket that says, this is too hard, let's go back to sleep. 
white silence. White silence and white apathy go hand in hand, feeding into each other. You are silent because you are apathetic to racism, and your apathy feeds even more silence. White exceptionalism. The idea that I'm one of the good ones puts you in a mindset that you are not racist and therefore you do not have to do anything more to practice anti-racism. Exceptionalism gives you a false sense of pride that is really white apathy in disguise. Color blindness. If you believe that we are in a post-racial time in history, then you feel no urgency to practice anti-racism. In fact, it is easy to convince yourself that your choice to not see color makes you anti-racist and therefore there is no further work to be done. You practice white apathy while convincing yourself you are practicing anti-racism. Anti-blackness and racist stereotypes. These deeply held subconscious. Okay. Well, I hope that that gave you a bit of a wake-up call to all the ways white supremacy expresses itself through you in ways that you stay comfortable by not having to have the conversation, in the ways that you're able to not examine it within yourself, or it's easier to keep the privilege than it is to speak up and out and start noticing that we were steeped in exceptionalism. So whatever amount of time you spent in 3HO, we're only amplifying the white supremacy narrative and model, but we've added the, the layer of spiritual superiority. And to detangle this level of superiority from within our root systems of our own bodies and our own psyches is not a comfortable experience. It's a very uncomfortable experience. And it's um, dismembering and it's emotional and it's full of shame and it's full of guilt. And that's why as white people, we can't um, then drop into our fragility and our own silence and our own policing, whether we're internally policing the way black and brown people want to express their, themselves, if it doesn't fit within the cultural narrative of the way white, white superiority dictates expression and bodies. So all of us have this. And I hope that this episode was a wake up call for you to begin to examine all the ways that you are playing out your white exceptionalism, white silence, white privilege, white fragility, colorblindness, anti-blackness against black women, anti-blackness against black men, anti-blackness against black children, racial stereotypes, cultural appropriation, which again, we've been steeped in, white apathy, white centering, white tokenism, white saviorism. Whew, does that one show up a lot in 3HO? This kind of white, the white women saviorism, right? That's kind of been propagated, the whiteness of kind of wearing all white, the mysticism of that, that has kind of just kind of got added to the white cloud of holy heavenly things. But then on top of that, there's quite a narrative that the, the 3HO white people are carrying on this some level of elevated Sikh history going forward. Um, again, a Punjabi man had reached out to me telling me about this. And I mean, it's just, it's horrible to carry on this, like all the ways that supremacy, white supremacy wraps itself up 
as if the white people are coming to save the day of the of the history of Sikhi. Like what? Huh? We're not even saying things correctly. We had to get corrected in pronunciation so that we can at least be getting nod meditation proper, right? Sad. Um, and yet we keep learning. So this is an opportunity for all of us to keep learning, to pierce our veils of white superiority and white exceptionalism, to see where we think that we're above the rule, that we don't see color, and allowing ourselves to get called out. Um, and called in and to not take personal offense, but to really start doing the work to dismantle your own family experience. Your upbringing, like me, my upbringing was rooted within a cultural appropriated life. There's nothing I can do about that, but to start to unravel that experience as it lives in my body and psyche and sexuality and all the things. And so it is for you. And then I also have the responsibility to dismantle my own family legacy, whether that's my Swedish roots or my Jewish roots and all the history of racism that both sides obviously have, because how could we not, right? Optical allyship, right? White saviorism. And then white feminism, white leaders, you and your friends, you and your family, you and your values, you and losing your privilege and you and your commitment to being an anti-racist and a good ancestor. This is the synopsis of the book, Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad, okay? So Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World and Become a Good Ancestor. Highly recommended and my call to action for you is to buy that book. If you want to do a 22 day challenge of Me and White Supremacy together, since I know the majority of listeners are white people, white spiritual people, and a lot of spiritual white women, I hope that all the ways that you have felt triggered by today's episode, you use as a call to action to dismantle within yourselves. And come in connection with others and let's dismantle this together. So if you would like to do a 22-day white supremacy challenge, shoot me an email. We'll see how many people respond from this episode. And I challenge you to be a part of this, to really do the anti-racism work, to start dismantling all the ways that white superiority um, that we benefit and we benefit it with our own privilege and how staying silent is continually upholding the supremacy system of whiteness. So on that note, I wanna thank you for uh, listening to another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. <clears throat> Don't forget, I am speaking to you. Yes, you. You listening to me right now. Get the book, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Afsad. And if you want support in dis doing this dismantling work, uh, shoot me an email at gn at gurunishan.com and let's do a dismantling challenge together. The question I have is, has your experience within 3HO, Kundalini Yoga community, do you consider yourself to be an exception? Do you consider yourself to be an exception? I've been dismantling this question within myself. I've been letting it dismantle me and some amazing, amazing things have been coming forth. So the power of unraveling our supremacist ways means that we have more space to be the amazing expression of who we are before we got conditioned with um, very rooted, predatory, racist, abused, abuse that encoded the way that we see the world. 
And we need to support black and brown people and people of color to dismantle racism so that we don't keep supporting it with our white silence, white apathy, and our unwillingness to do the necessary work within ourselves so that we can call this stuff out in each other and in the systems of oppression that all of us participate in to live our daily lives. Again, I wanna thank you for listening to another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast, then donate at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. Sorry, I said that wrong. Um, I also remembered that I found a song that I wanted to share in regards to this episode. And the song is by, uh, it's called White Lies by Death. And we are going to share this song and then I'm gonna go ahead and sign off. So let's do this. So for copyrighted purposes, we don't play the whole song, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist on Spotify to listen to that whole song. All right, breaking open our white supremacy indoctrination and white exceptionalism. And I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. I have a lot more to say about the spiritual white woman and the history of the white woman as a predator in general. So we're gonna have a lot more episodes here. I'd like to hear about your stories in 3HO about superiority, exceptionalism, silence, all the ways that white supremacy is upheld within our everyday lives, but also within spiritual communities like 3HO Kudalini Yoga. And join me in doing the dismantling work within yourself as a spiritual white woman Um, to start unrooting supremacy from your own psyche and your own body. Thanks again for tuning in and look forward to speaking with you on another episode once again. I'm Guru Nishan at gurunishan.com. And do me a favor, share this episode with another white person. Send this to someone else whether they're in another spiritual community, whether they're in a religious community, whether they're your neighbor, whoever they are, send this to someone else and let's collectively start doing the internal work necessary to dismantle supremacy inside of ourselves. White exceptionalism, white silence, white apathy, none of these things are okay. And it's our responsibility as white people, spiritual white people to start having better conversations about the 
disgusting and horrible ways that white supremacy exists in places in plain sight. And it's up to us to speak about it. Okay. White people, it's up to us to speak about it. Have an amazing rest of this episode. Go back and listen to it again and share it with a friend right now.